Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. Today we get the chance to speak with Sarah Kessens, who's a research fellow at the University of Canterbury. And in this discussion, we talk a lot about her work as a synthetic biologist. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Sarah. You know, the, when we get into the genetically modified argument, um, it's a tool. Again, there's lots of tools out there that can be used for good or evil. I think GM's gotten a bad rap because sort of the first things that were commercialized for GM weren't consumer focused. You know, they're focused on the farmer, which, you know, they've been great solutions agriculturally, um, but they also, you know, sort of haven't gone about it in the sort of the best public relations way. Um, uh, And again, and, you know, pesticides and herbicides and things do cause problems. And again, as a, you know, an ethically minded synthetic biologist, we can get rid of a lot of herbicides or insecticides. So, you know, we can, we can make a lot of solutions using genetically modified organisms, but I understand people's fears. And again, like we talked about at the beginning, you know, if there's things that you don't understand, you're, you're going to naturally fear them. But I think if we, you know, we can help people out with a little bit of education, then hopefully we'll uh, eliminate some of that fear and, and be able to create more solutions. Now, next week's episode, we'll be speaking with Andrew Bell from the Fred Hollis Foundation, and we'll be finding out about his life story as well as what the Fred Hollis Foundation is doing today. If you don't want to miss out on that and other upcoming episodes, then just hit subscribe. And thank you to those of you who keep telling your friends about this. Every month, it's going up in terms of number of people listening, and I really appreciate each one of you who are listening and becoming ambassadors for the show. I think it's a great vehicle to get some good stories out into the community. Now let's get into the interview with Sarah. So it's a pleasure to welcome Sarah Kessens, who's a research fellow at the University of Canterbury. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, What we do on this show is we talk a lot about purpose and what people are doing in their lives. And I know we're going to have some fascinating conversations (laughs) because um, we're going to be talking about NASA and space and some of your experiences there, as well as the research you're doing now. But in order to set the scene and understand sort of how you got to where you are, it'd be great to go back and find out more about your background. So can you just start us from the beginning? Where are you from? Absolutely. So unfortunately, I'm not a a native Kiwi. I consider myself a Kiwi now, Um, but had a a great upbringing in the United States. I grew up on a farm in the southern part of Indiana, um, sort of 160 acres, lots of forests, lots of fields, lots of places to explore with uh, my little sister, who was about three years younger than me. and yeah, just grew up a really adventurous, curious kid. And uh, yeah, spent a lot of time outdoors, but spent a lot of time playing team sports and was really fortunate to have an incredible science teacher when I was in middle school and sort of took me away from uh, the basketball courts a little bit and got me really interested in science and got me into the science research program at our high school. So we were a really little high school, uh, graduated with less than 88 people in my class. But uh, um, the science research program there was just, I mean, it was the top of the state for this itty bitty little school there in in Southern Indiana. We had some really good uh, teachers and mentors in that program. And that teacher that you mentioned, um, what was it about them that made science so attractive? Or, you know, how did they, how did they draw you in? Uh, I think, so her name was Miss McElroy. 
she really uh, took each individual student and found out what their motivation was. And she knew that I really enjoyed working with plants and that I really enjoyed being outside. Um, and I had shown you know, an interest in science in general, but she really took my interest in the natural world and plants and uh, um, sort of steered me into that direction and, and looking at what sort of scientific questions I could answer by being outside. And, uh, and so I, you know, I was just actually walking out in the woods one day and I noticed that in this red oak grove, there was nothing growing in the understory and I just asked why. And that led to a four-year research project in high school. And like I said, uh, Ms. McElroy sort of molded me into the, the scientist that I would eventually become. And wow. really just, yeah, it took my motivation and uh, we went all the way up to, you know, the state level. We were winning state level science fairs and uh, to the international science fair and uh, actually became one of the top 40 finalists in the, uh, it's the Intel Science Talent Search, which is a high school competition there in the U.S. And so for a little kid from Pekin, Indiana, which, you know, no one's ever heard of, to go all the way to Washington, D.C. as one of the top 40 finalists in, you know, of all the high schools in the U.S. was a completely eye-opening experience for me. And, th and that was centered on that research that you'd done as a high school student? Yes, correct. Yeah. So it started off you know, just asking a question why there weren't plants growing in the understory of this red oak grove. And at the end of four years, I had created a natural herbicide from uh, the sawdust of the oak trees. So the, the red oak trees are a, um, a big timber uh, product in there in Indiana. And so there was a lot of sawdust as a waste product. And so I basically took that, that waste product and created a, a herbicide out of it. Hmm. Um, yeah. Wow. So you're pretty young to be doing that. <laughs> uh, that yeah. Yeah. Um, and your teacher had kind of identified that this was a passion for you that, that early? Yes. Um, like I said, she was really good at, you know, sort of bringing out the best in her students and really finding out what made us tick and, and finding out what our own passions were. And, uh, and sort of, like I said, taking me away from sports, which my, my other passion and, uh, you know, sort of showing me a world outside of, of Southern Indiana. Yeah. And what do you think made her, made her that way? <laughs> what made her tick as a teacher to be wanting to do that? Um, it's a good question. She was just an, a phenomenal teacher. Um, he just really cared about people. And I think as I become a leader, that's something that I'm trying to instill in, you know, in my, myself. And as I build my own research teams, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, she just she really cared about her students, and she wanted us to to see a world beyond Washington County. And mm. uh, and yeah, I think it was just that that caring for her students that motivated her. Mm. Oh, that's great. Uh, sometimes I think teachers are some of the most underappreciated people in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you look at the amount of compensation for the amount of work that they do and the amount that they feed into children and kids, you know, it's 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 a not an easy job, but. They're there every day, you know. Um, Absolutely. And I probably wasn't the easiest kid to work with. <laughs> I was pretty stubborn um, as, a, as a teenager. Um, but she, like I said, she, she found what, what made each of us tick and really, really helped us along. It was really interesting for me. It's another little story. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about my NASA journey here later. Um, but I learned, you know, many, many years later after high school that, that Ms. McElroy had actually wanted to be an astronaut herself. Hmm. And so it was really neat to be able to share my NASA journey with her and sort of, you know, she could follow me and, and sort of, you know, have that, that journey herself mm -hmm. um, when she, you know, she chose rather than going down the astronaut path, she went to the teaching path. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to live vicariously through her students was, was really special for me to be able to share that with her. Yeah. 
Oh, that's yeah. great that you stayed in contact like that. Because sometimes it's like, well, I've graduated. See you later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, my grandmother was a, a teacher of um, like new entrants, you know, so five-year-olds. Yes. And she used to get people coming up to her in the supermarket because it was quite a small town. And they would say, oh, Mrs. Mo. And of course, now they're like 20 years old and they remember her. But she, you know, it would right. be like 15 <laughs> years later. But it was always special for her that these children that she'd had some part to play in would would come up and identify and oh I remember yeah you know five years old my first day at school you were my teacher oh that's really special <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's really cool so your it sounds like science was a first love in terms of academics is that right that is correct yes. <laughs> and so you knew what you were going to study going into the you know the next level university and that type of thing yes I was really really lucky in that regard like I said I you know I had a passion for adventure and, and team sports but as far as what I wanted to study, I knew it was going to be science sort of from the get-go. You know, all through high school, that was something I had excelled at and that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And especially if I could combine that with my love for the natural world and being outside, then uh, that was sort of the best of all worlds for me. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And so what happened next? Where did you go to study and what did you study? So, well, actually, even sort of between high school and university, there was a uh, um, sort of thing that totally changed my world again. So as part of um, the Intel Science Talent Search, I was invited to go to the Weizmann Institute of Science in Rehovo, Israel, between uh, my senior year of high school and my first year of university. All right. And so I got to spend uh, summer there at, um, at the Institute working with some, you know, some of the scientists from the Institute as part of a, a sort of a summer science camp. Um, there were 66 of us that had just graduated from high school from uh, 14 different countries. So it was a sort of mini United Nations, um, wow. you know, sort of 17, 18 year olds working all together at the university, living together. And it was sort of my first experience abroad, mm -hmm. uh, working with people from all over the world. You know, again, I came from a very small rural school in Indiana and getting to you know, experience not only living in a foreign country, but interacting with people from all over the world was just a completely eye-opening experience. Yeah. And so having that experience and seeing sort of world-class research uh, really opened my eyes as to the possibilities for, you know, for research and for, you know, sort of global integration and, and collaboration. Yeah. Um, and just so we're clear, it's not like you were coming from Washington, D.C. or New York or Los Angeles, like a major metropolis. You were from a small little place, right? Exactly. So, so this was a huge contrast to that, I bet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a huge, huge contrast. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, you know, some of the different science competitions that I was competing in, I was, you know, one of very few public school kids. You know, there's a lot of uh, students that were from, you know, these sort of big private high schools in sort of East Coast and West Coast. Um, there's a lot of high schools that even, you know, when I went into the, the you know, science competitions, I didn't even know these schools existed. Hmm. Um, I mean, I was from a little school and I thought that's how most that's schools how were. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> and so going to the competitions was eye-opening, but then again, going to Israel and just seeing, you know, how big the world was, but at the same time, how small the world was. I mean, all the, you know, 17, 18-year-olds you know, we were all alike, you know, we we're from these completely different places around the world, completely different experiences, but we all had, you know, sort of the same dreams and passions. And mm. so it was really cool to, to experience that. Yeah, that's amazing. And what did they do? Did they billet you out or were you staying with these other students or how did that work? So we were all staying in sort of a little student village, um, sort of like right. dorms. Um, so you but, got to know everyone pretty well then. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So we were working for four or five days a week, and then they took us all over Israel during the summer. So we got to go, 
you know, to the Dead Sea and snorkeling in the Red Sea and up into the Golan Heights and climbing yeah. Mount Masada at, at daybreak. And it was, like I said, it was the, the best summer of my life, I think. Yeah. Um, wow. yeah. Just getting to, to experience all that. Yeah. And have you stayed in touch with some of those people or... Yes, actually, um, there's quite a few of us that ended up in science and right. went on to get our PhDs. Well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, so yeah, what yeah, was yeah. the result of that? Because it's great to pull people out and give them that opportunity. And I just was, you know, just curious, like, what does that result in? Yeah. And looking back, you can say, actually, there's quite a high percentage of people here who went on to do other things. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And uh, and it's really interesting, sort of, the, the people that the program attracted. Mm-hmm. Because um, we have stayed in touch, you know, with quite a few of them. There are 66 of us, and, and several of them I still consider my very good friends. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think all of us went on to be successful in whatever we did. But the the few that I've kept closest to are all in science. Yeah. Um, and so that's it's really neat. You know, I have different friends working for the National Institutes of Health, um, and people that you know were from one country are now living in a different country or doing research. You know, we, we stayed very global. Right. Um, we didn't go back to, you know, our home country and sort of stay isolated. Like that mm. experience allowed us to see what all was going on in, in different parts of the world. And so we sort of became this global community. Right. Um, what, how hard was it, or I'll phrase that differently, what was it like going back to the place that you were from, having had that amazing mountaintop experience? Yeah, no, that was definitely interesting. And, I, I mean, it was... Like I said, I, I came back as sort of completely changed person. Right. Um, I mean, I was still the, you know, southern Indiana, small town kid. But I had a completely different perspective on the opportunities that the world had. Um, so it was different. So, I mean, I came back to my friends and it was really good and it was interesting. That was sort of the last summer before we all went off to university. Um, so it was sort of a goodbye anyways. Um, and then when I went to university... I went in, you know, with different perspectives than I think that I would have had I not had that experience. Mm, but yeah. I was, I was still the same, you know, goofy Southern Indiana kid. Yeah. But uh, just a different perspective as well, a different layer. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, knowing what's out there and being excited about the opportunities. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I know you've kind of specialized in sort of biology, and and was that something that you started? in right from the beginning in your first years at university or did you do different types of science or yeah so biology has always been my passion and uh sort of plant biology is has been my real focus um for the last you know for actually for most of my career and I've, I've moved into um some some fungi and different organisms that sort of thing but mm-hmm. plant biology was what i got started with and that's what i went um i started my university degree uh, in plant biology and graduated my uh, my undergraduate was in plant biology and so I was, that that traces back to the high school days and the the oak tree and correct right. yeah yeah like I said I I always had sort of a, a natural bent to my science um, I mean chemistry and physics were interesting to me um, but the natural world is is what I knew again growing up on a farm uh, sort of the agricultural side of things and the the forestry side of things is what I knew, and that's what interested me um, in the very beginning. And I was really lucky to have a couple of different scholarships um, when I started at Purdue University, which is our uh, sort of like Lincoln here. It's the agricultural school, and it's it's real big in both agriculture and engineering. Uh, so it was really neat to have all sorts of different worlds and, and really high-level research going on. Um, but like I said, sort of the, the agricultural side is what I was was focused on. Mm. Um, so through some of the scholarships that I had at Purdue, I was really lucky to get into a lab my first year 
which not all undergraduates are working in a lab, you know, when they basically from day one. Mm. And so, um, you know, as a first year, I was mostly washing dishes and doing little <laughs> things around the lab. Um, just basically don't break equipment. Um, right. But but I was, you know, sort of, you know, the, the graduate students and the postdocs in the lab took me under their wing and, you know, showed me their projects. And I got really interested in what they were doing. And so the, by the time that I was a little bit more experienced, I got my own projects and uh, started working on cell wall biosynthesis. And I did an honors project um, looking at the genes that are involved in making cell walls in mm. plants. Wow. So I'm curious. So just unpack that for us <laughs> a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Um, yeah. What exactly did that involve? Like, how do you study that? And what were some of the outcomes of the study? Yeah, so this has been a, a project that's been a few years ago. Um, but, you know, there's different pathways and different genes that are responsible for making basically everything that a cell makes. Mm -hmm. And so there are a couple genes that I was looking at that make different sugars that make up the structure of cell walls. And so what we were specifically looking at were a few mutants. So if you change a gene in a specific way, how does that affect how the cell wall is made? And so we were looking at that for a couple different reasons. Um, one, you know, at an agricultural school, we were looking at, you know, grasses, so things like corn and wheat. If we change these genes, would we have stronger corn or weaker corn? So that's a, a really important thing. You know, if you have winds or, um, or floods or things, if you have, you know, weak corn and it falls over, then obviously you're not going to get the yields that you want. So it was really important to look at the genes that were making these cell walls so we could make, you know, stronger you know, cell walls and, and thus stronger mm. crops. Right. Um, so that's sort of what I was looking at. It were the genes that were involved in, in making cell walls. Yeah. How do you think being a scientist and understanding genes and, you know, like that's such a, it, it's a fascinating topic. How does it then impact sort of the way that you look at the world? Um, it makes so many possibilities, I think. When you understand sort of the universal language, which is DNA, and you understand, you know, we have it, bugs have it, plants have it, fungi have it, and we all speak the same language. Mm -hmm. A, it really makes you feel a part of the world. You know, it's like we all share this language. Like we might not be able to communicate, but we all have DNA and we all sort of work the same way. And so understanding biology on a molecular level really gives you a different perspective on, on how things work. And then especially now with some of the synthetic biology and molecular biology tools that we have, it just opens up so many possibilities for solving all sorts of problems that we have in the world. So if you know that you can, you know, take a gene and you understand what that gene does, you know, whether it's medical or agricultural, industrial, you know, you can take a gene, you know, from a, a daffodil and put it into rice. And all of a sudden now you have rice that's got vitamin A that can help stop blindness in, mm -hmm. you know, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, I mean, it's just all these possibilities, you know, where, you know, climate change or world hunger, um, like I said, whether it's agriculture or medical, there's so many problems that we can solve using these genetic tools. And it just, it, it's really exciting. Yeah. So, you, so you got the big picture um, from the detail. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> and just picking up on the first point that you made, just that we're all, I guess that we're all living, you yes. know, that we're all here. Yeah. Um, in a way that kind of breaks down some of the barriers that we might erect as cultural or uh, societal things, doesn't it? Yes, it really you, you does. Know, we're it, we're it all in this unifies. together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is that sort of. Um, sometimes I think we get caught up too much in um, barriers in terms of thinking about well, those are those people over there, and we're over here, and and we're very different. But actually, you, what you're saying, you know, at a, at a molecular level, like yeah. it's, it's a really 
small. Yes. <laughs> We're yeah. all living. And I think that's a big thing. Um, you know, when I talk to people about molecular biology or synthetic biology, like, oh, that's, you know, it's really hard. It's something I don't understand. Mm. And I think that has parallels to cultures as well. And it's like, you know, when you don't understand a culture, you have a fear of culture. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have fear of chemistry just because they don't understand it. It's not necessarily hard if you take the time, you know, to understand it, even just a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's actually not that scary. And I think that's the same with cultures as well as, you know, when you understand that you know, we're not actually all that different and it's not all that scary. It's just something that you don't know yet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the point I was keen to draw out of your first point. And then your second point, just with synthetic, because that's that's what you're studying now. Is that I mean, that's what you're doing now. That's Correct. your research. And yes. Um, do you want to just explain a little bit more about that and what you're studying? Because um, I think people would be interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. So synthetic biology, to me, is sort of using nature's rules to create new products. Um, so we're really understanding the genes that are responsible for producing you know, either different proteins um, and enzymes, specifically what we're looking at. Um, so, so we're specifically looking at biosynthetic pathways uh, in different organisms. And right now we're looking at, at fungi and the, the biosynthetic pathways that produce different compounds that can be used for new antibiotics or anti-cancer agents. Um, there's a lot of different things out there, both, both for agriculture and, and medical uses. And so what we're trying to do is understand what those genes are doing and what enzymes they create. So sort of the, the workhorses of molecular biology are sort of enzymes that do these different jobs to create different compounds mm. in organisms. So what we're trying to do is understand those pathways and then we can sort of modify those pathways to create new, um, new compounds. So, you know, antibiotic resistance is a really big problem. And so if we can make new antibiotics and new compounds, basically using nature's rules. So we're, we're using these pathways and we're manipulating them a little bit so that we can na- make new compounds that hopefully uh, solve some of our problems. Mm. And just follow it through in terms of the anti-cancer thing that you were saying, like what would be the outcome eventually if you're successful how yeah. would that work on a practical level That's yeah my question. yeah 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 um so looking at uh, you know like i said so you know developing these new compounds and uh eventually you know we'll have collaborators and that sort of thing that would um be able to test some of these compounds in a you know in a clinical setting um again this is all sort of theoretical right now we're we're yeah. still working on you, you know what compounds yeah exactly yeah um there are definitely compounds out there that are you know promising um that we would sort of, you know, have the, the pathways to produce these different compounds and then uh, then test those compounds in a, like I said, a clinical setting. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I just, I'm not sure how this question is going to come out, so bear with me, but you've used the word sort of natural ways of doing things yeah. and the, harnessing nature, I think you said, yes. or something like yes, that. Correct. But then um, what you're talking about doing is also manipulating or changing the very nature of the whatever it is yes so can you just talk about how that fits <laughs> yeah in the sense of um i like apples mm. but i also like nectarines let's mash them together and we'll come up with an apple terrine <laughs> <laughs> like it, it, at what point does it become this uh this going at what point does it go too far <laughs> yeah um that's an excellent question that's something that as a molecular biologist as a synthetic biologist you know we we really do have to ask ourselves all the time i mean synthetic biology is a great tool but like any tool it can be used for good or for evil and uh you know ethics is a very big part of mm. synthetic biology and understanding 
you know, what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. And so as far as biology is concerned, I mean, theoretically, you could make an apple nectarine. Like, yeah. It would be a lot of work. There's a <laughs> lot of genes that have to go into, you know, putting one into the other to, sure. to get sort of the product that you're looking for. But theoretically, because we all share the same DNA, you know, it's sort of possible. That sounds, you know, sort of out there. And again, that's not our purpose um, as synthetic biologists is to, you know, just go and, you know, create and sort of what they say, play God, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's not our goal. Um, our goal is to, to solve problems. But I mean, in theory, we can do a lot with synthetic biology, yeah. um, you know, sort of mixing and matching of, of genes and, yeah. and that sort of thing. So you mentioned ethics there. Like, how does that inform what you're doing? Like, yeah, how does that feed in? Or what is it that you're thinking about when you're talking with your colleagues about should we or shouldn't we do this or that? Yeah, it's interesting because morals, you know, globally are so different. You know, there's, you know, what in one culture would be accepted is not necessarily accepted in a different culture. And so I think the biggest thing that we look at is is purpose um, and what can this be used for in the future. So again, the things that we're looking at are always going to stay in the lab. Right. Um, we're not, you know, looking to, you know, spread these things, these sort of, you know, these genetically modified organisms out. We're using them as, you know, sort of a, as a workhorse mm. um, to create, you know, a, a solution to some problem. Um, yeah. So again, whether it's so my apple terrine probably <laughs> doesn't rank compared to curing cancer. Uh, well, again. It, there are consumer-focused products, yeah. so there's some really neat uh, research going on in the States right now, and actually some of the new um, sort of cultivars of, um, of different, you know, um, crops that have gotten approved now. Uh, so there's one, uh, it's an apple that doesn't brown. So basically there's an enzyme in apples that when you cut an apple, it, basically it starts, you know, turning brown, it starts oxidizing uh, the different sugars in this apple. So you cut an apple and you leave it on the bench and it turns brown. Mm. Well, they've, you know, the um, the people that have worked with this particular apple have uh, have knocked out that enzyme, and so now when you cut the apple, it doesn't brown, which has all sorts of implications for, you know, for if you want to, you know, have sliced apples or you want to put it in a fruit salad or different things like that. And it's a very very simple thing. All yeah. they've done is turn that gene off. Right. Um, but it's that's a very consumer focused thing. So it's yeah. you know it's not you know creating sort of Monsanto frankenfoods, which um, as a synthetic biologist, you know, it's, those are the, those are the scary things that you hear. And what we're trying to do is, is solve problems, whether it's for yeah. a farmer or for, you know, medical purpose or for the consumer. So yeah. there's lots of things we can do there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious as well about one other thing, just when we're talking about food and yeah. plants and things. Um, I once was in um, Peru and uh, had the chance to travel around and like, saw Machu Picchu and the tourist things. Yeah. And one of the amazing things to me was the variety of corn that they had. Yes. I know it sounds like a strange thing to say, but they, were, they had corn that they were selling where literally the kernels were like giant. Yeah. And um, the reality, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we've kind of selected some cultivated food products, you yes, know, like correct. some vegetables and kind of put a lot of effort into growing them. So then we go to the supermarket today, we buy corn and it looks like, you know, kind of what we all would assume, but correct. actually there's many other natural varieties and the same could be said, I guess, for, you know, tomatoes or wheat or other things. Yes. Um, yeah. Just talk to me about that sort of, uh, I guess the diversity of life yes. when it comes to food. Yeah. Um, it's, it's beautiful, the diversity of life. And again, when you go to places where those foods originated, so, you know, South, um, Central and Southern America is where, um, 
is where corn originated. Mm-hmm. So teosinte is the sort of ancestral corn, which if you tried to eat teosinte, it's, you know, it'd be impossible because you'd break your teeth. It's just a really hard kernel and there's, you know, five or six kernels on the ear. It doesn't look anything like modern corn. Mm. But what our ancestors did was took that teosinte and, you know, they would, you know, as we started agriculture, they, you know, started selecting for the, you know, little bit softer bits or the little bit tastier bits. And over 10,000 years, we have corn as we see it today. Mm. But when you go back to these places where it originated, you've got all this genetic diversity that maybe isn't available in modern corn. So if you want, say, you know, a corn that is more resistant to, you know, some maybe some bug that we haven't seen before, maybe evolutionarily it might have had, you know, that sort of defense. So if we go back to the places where there is a greater genetic diversity of corn, we can potentially find different genes that aren't available in our modern corn. So it's really important to keep that genetic diversity, especially sort of in those places where where crops originated. So when I was in Israel, I was actually working on a a project um, that was dealing with with goat grass, which is the um, sort of the, the ancestor of wheat. And so it's really interesting to look at the genetic diversity between goat grass all the way up through sort of modern wheat. And, uh, and, and it, again, it's very important to have that genetic diversity because if we lose those sort of ancestral strains, then we'll never, you know, get those, those genes back. Mm. And I guess the point is that it might take a thousand years to selectively breed to, to get this particular variety of whatever. Yeah. Um, but what, what you're hoping to do as you work more into it, that you could actually speed up the process so that you go to all the ancestral varieties and then pull out the bits that maybe would be most beneficial exactly and then have a new product that actually does you know whatever correct benefit there yeah. is. yeah and that's that's basically what we were doing what we're doing as synthetic I biologists see. is is being able to because we can only do it using nature's rules right you know we can't just you know automatically make our own rules for how genetics is going to work so we have to work um you know with the dna as it you know as it is going to be naturally sort of read in the in the organism but rather than waiting for several generations to try to tease out which gene might work or um, if we can you know, get it into a breeding program, it, that's going to take several generations. Um, and you may not get it right. But if you know the exact gene and you can put that gene into a plant, then you've got your solution right there. Yeah. Okay. It makes sense. But I want to ask a question, which is, what does it practically look like? How do you actually <laughs> do this <laughs> in I, I'm honestly, I'd, I'm just curious how you would splice it together and, and make it work. Like just yeah. on a day-to-day level, what is it that you're doing when you go into the lab and, hey, everybody, how was your weekend? <laughs> yeah. And then you turn to your desk and it's, how does it fit together? <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's a, it's a great question. And that's one thing that I would really like to be able to show, you know, the public, you know, exactly what we do and, and to see that it's not that scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so there's, you know, there's several different ways that we can manipulate organisms. But again, we're all sort of using, you know, the natural, I mean, it's, that's quotes, natural ways of, uh, of manipulating organisms. So uh, for plants, there's several different ways. But one I think is the most interesting and sort of fun for, you know, for understanding it is uh, there's a bacterium called agrobacterium that naturally infects plants. And so if you go out Hagley Park and you look at the the cherry trees out in Hagley, um, there's sort of cherry trees that have these sort of cancer looking things on them. And that's agrobacterium. So basically in a you know spot where the cherry tree has gotten nicked or you know um, you know a little sort of a, 
a wound in the plant, agrobacterium will get into that wound and it sort of forms a plant cancer. Mm. Well, we've been able to, to use that agrobacterium to infect plant cells in the lab. And so we take out sort of the, the cancer-causing, the tumor-causing bits of that bacterium, and we replace it with a gene that we want in the plant. And so that bacterium will naturally infect those plant cells and get into the plant genome. But then rather than having a tumor-inducing gene um, that basically makes you know, these big galls on the, the, the cherry trees out in Hagley, um, we can put different genes in. So for my PhD, I was working with an HIV vaccine. So I was actually putting HIV genes into a plant. So it was a plant uh, called Nicotiana benthamiana, sort of a, a workhorse that we use in the lab. Uh, it's related to tobacco, but it's got really high biomass and it grows really fast and it's easy to, uh, to work with in the lab. And so I was using agrobacterium that I had genetically manipulated to have these HIV genes. So sort of, um, so yeah. The, the process there is a little bit harder ex to explain uh, quickly, but basically putting these genes into agrobacterium, the agrobacterium will sort of naturally take up those, those bits of DNA, and then using that bacteria to uh, sort of just incubating it with some plant cells, and then the agrobacterium will infect those plant cells and integrate into the genome of those plant cells. And if you grow those plant cells up into a full plant with, with the roots and, and shoots, then all those plant cells will have the HIV gene in. And if you're lucky, um, it doesn't always work, so we're, we're still perfecting this process, but then they should produce those HIV genes, and we can actually purify those HIV proteins out of the plant and use that as an HIV vaccine. Hmm. Wow, that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, but it's, it's fascinating, like I said. Yeah. Uh, once, once you understand what's going on and you, you, know, you're, you sort of optimize the process, then yeah. it's really fascinating. Yeah, and just at a practical level when you're talking about splicing in this or that into the genes like how does it how do you do that <laughs> <laughs> no it's a great question like i said these are um you know these these are things that i really enjoy talking about especially to yeah. a sort of a, a lay audience so um we use different enzymes so again these are just proteins that that either chop things up or glue things back together sure um so for splicing a gene into um, so we, we put them usually into plasmids, which are sort of like little circles of DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we cut those circles open using what we call restriction enzymes. So they're just sort of molecular scissors mm -hmm. that sort of chop little pieces of your, your DNA out. And then we can ligate them back together with an enzyme called ligase, which is just basically a molecular glue. Mm -hmm. So if you have specific enzymes that recognize different parts of your DNA... You can cut out very specific parts of your DNA and glue them back together in the sequence that you want. I see. And then, uh, like I said, use that for for your uh, your genetic engineering. Yeah. Okay. And you're you're looking at this through microscopes, and you can kind of see things, or how? It, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just interested in the nitty gritty. Yeah. You know, no. Absolutely. Because I'm just trying to get how it actually works yeah. practically. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because sort of when I got into molecular biology, you know, I was coming from a, a plant biology background, you know, in high school. Mm -hmm which were all things I could see. Mm -hmm. And when I got into plant biology, I thought, you know, I'll always be able to see what I'm working with. And molecular biology, for better or worse, when you're actually doing the, the work at the bench, you can't see it. I mean, it looks like you're, you know, putting little drops of water into little drops of water. Right. And in essence, you know, you're putting some enzymes with your DNA and, and it will be doing a reaction and you put it into a PCR machine, which is basically a, a really expensive thermocycler sort of, you know, heating the temperature up and cooling it back down in different cycles I see. so that the, the enzymes can cut and ligate uh, as they need to. But well, the point is you, you haven't got like a, 
a molecular sized uh, knife. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, so yeah, it looks like we're basically adding little drops of water to little drops of water. And, uh, and we put them in the she- machine and it still looks like, you know, you've got a little tube of water there, but then we can use different techniques to, uh, to visualize what's going on. Right. So we can, you know, it can run our DNA, DNA on a gel and we can see the size of the DNA so we can see if the enzymes have done yeah. uh, what we want them to do. And then when you put them into an organism, there's different ways to test whether your proteins are being expressed and whether you're getting the compounds that you want. Yeah. Well, the fascinating thing is that it's so small, you know, like yes. in our day to day life, like we're here, we're looking at each other yes. and you can see you can see things. But what you're talking about is just at that level that's just so little. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it makes it really fascinating to think about, I think. Yeah, and yeah. it, it, it's really fun to work with. It also can be frustrating because sometimes you don't, you know, you're, you're doing an experiment and you, can actually, you can't actually visualize what's going on and you might have to wait, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks to see if what you're doing actually worked or not. Yeah, um, I have two questions for you that may be slightly controversial, but the first <laughs> one is um, gluten and sort of the... the products these days seem to be so processed that it, it feels like that's become more of a, an issue, you know, like gluten intolerance or celiac and that type of thing. Um, what's your take on that <laughs> in, in the sense of has, has our food changed over the last couple of decades and it's not as raw as it used to be and we're eating more processed food? And, and how does that fit in with the things that you're doing? Uh, it's an excellent question. Uh, for better or worse, I'm not an expert mm-hmm. on the gluten protein. Uh, as you know, an agriculturalist, and you know, as a you know, I grew up in a in a rural area that grew lots of wheat. Um, the wheat itself and the way we grow it really hasn't changed. Our diets absolutely have changed, and that's more of a food science question than mm-hmm. sort of an agricultural and a you know genetically modified question. Um, I mean, the the actual makeup of the wheat really hasn't changed, you know, in the last couple generations. Um, But absolutely the food that we eat and the way that we process it definitely has changed. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we should be aware of. And, uh, and again, those are some of the things that as scientists, if there are problems that we're seeing, um, you know, gluten intolerance and celiacs and things like that, then we should be able to find solutions to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, if it is, you know, a way that we're processing things, then as you know, a food scientist can change the way we process things. But if it is a proper, you know, there's something in the wheat that's causing a problem, then we can theoretically change the, you know, the, the genetic makeup of that wheat to solve some of those problems. Yeah. So there's some different projects going on right now that are really cool, um, you know, sort of relating to allergies. So, you know, peanut allergies are a really big problem. But mm-hmm. if we can take those proteins out of protein, or excuse me, take those proteins out of peanuts, so there basically is no more peanut allergy, that would be a huge you know, solution to a to an allergy problem. So it's something that we can do. But like I said, I'm not an expert on gluten. Yeah, per se. no, that's okay. I didn't yeah. expect you to be. It was just yeah. it's it does have a relation, doesn't it? Because you're talking about plants and food, and and I think there is. Well, I've certainly noticed the last couple of years. It feels like there's more and more issues with um, intolerance of different yeah. you know allergies and different things. I have a second controversial question. Maybe not controversial. No, that's good. <laughs> um, I'm just curious because some people listening will be very much into organic food and not want to have any chemicals or um, you know the words genetically modified would be a huge red flag in terms of what is what is it that we're eating and 
And I'm just, yeah, how would you respond to that? Because I, I get the sense from you that you come from a background where it was about natural food and living yeah. on a farm. Yes. Like you get it. Yeah. And so that organic argument or that that side of things, what, what would you say to somebody who was sitting here and saying, you know, I really disagree with what you're doing? No, absolutely. And I have a lot of conversations with, you know, with people that are definitely you know, anti-GMO and pro-organic, and I have nothing against those people per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest thing for me is that we, we are having a challenge of having to feed, you know, in the, in the coming years, you know, 9 billion people on this planet. And in order to do that, we're going to have to use all the tools in our toolbox. And, you know, as, you know, an industrial nation that, you know, we've got lots of money to spend, um, you know, if, if you want to go organic, I, you know, I understand that but it's really not sustainable on a global level. Um, and there's, I mean, this, yeah, this might be com- controversial, but I, I that's okay. yeah, it's, that's it's good my then. position. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, organic just doesn't work, like I said, on a, on a global scale. Um, I mean, it sounds really nice that, you know, you're not using chemicals, but even organic farming does use chemicals. They're just different chemicals and they're not always the most environmentally friendly. Um, so, you know, copper is a natural element, but it's not necessarily environmentally friendly, but you're allowed to use copper as a, as a pesticide in organic farming. Um, so I think a lot of people don't understand exactly what they're eating when they're eating organic. You know, it's sort of a, you know, the in thing to do and it, it sounds good and it makes you feel good that you're, you know, you're doing good for the planet. And I'm all about doing good for the planet. I, that's, you know, we're all in this together. We're one big global community. I want to have sustainable farming. I want you know, for the next several generations to be eating good, healthy food and being, you know, sustainable, um, you know, farmers out here for the planet. But yeah, on, on a global scale, organic doesn't really work. And as you know, the, when we get into the genetically modified argument, um, it's a tool. Again, there's lots of tools out there that can be used for good or evil. I think GM's gotten a bad rap because sort of the first things that were commercialized for GM weren't consumer focused. You know, they're focused on the farmer, which, you know, they've been great solutions agriculturally, um, but they also, you know, sort of haven't gone about it in the sort of the best public relations way. Um, sure. uh, yeah. And again, and, you know, pesticides and herbicides and things do cause problems. And again, as a, you know, an ethically minded synthetic biologist, we can get rid of a lot of herbicides or insecticides. So, you know, we can, we can make a lot of solutions using genetically modified organisms, but I understand people's fears. And again, like we talked about at the beginning, you know, there's things that you don't understand, you're, you're going to naturally fear them. But I think if we, you know, we can help people out with a little bit of education, then hopefully we'll uh, eliminate some of that fear and, and, be able to create more solutions using yeah. synthetic biology. Well, I'm, I think a podcast like this, you can talk about huge variety of topics, you know, like yeah. every week is very, very different. So that's why I want to go there with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and if nothing else, people can think about it themselves and, and come to their conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. So we're recording this. We're in New Zealand. How did you end up in New Zealand? <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so towards the end of my PhD, I knew I wanted to, to go out and explore a little bit more. And uh, I had some collaborators in Cape Town, South Africa. So there was a you know opportunity to go to Cape Town uh, for a postdoc. And then I was talking to some of the uh, the graduate students there, and you know it sounded amazing, you know kayaking and, and mountain biking and rock climbing and things like that. And that's sort of what I wanted to continue continue to do is 
you know, sort of in Arizona, it was a really adventurous area, lots mm. of mountains and rivers and lakes. And I knew I wanted to go somewhere else where I could continue, um, you know, going out into the, to the mountains and the rivers and lakes. Yeah. And uh, so Cape Town sounded good. But then sort of uh, my partner at the time, uh, he had always wanted to, to come to New Zealand as well. And so I, you know, started looking at some of the research opportunities here in New Zealand and realized that both the research was really good and, you know, I, I also developed this passion for, for wanting to come and explore New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So I applied for a couple of different uh, fellowships and uh, a couple of different postdoctoral fellowships, um, both, both jobs and then um, some of the uh, different um, opportunities through the National Science Foundation in the States and ended up sort of got two within five hours of each other. So oh, I got really? a, a National Science Foundation um, international research fellowship and then a, a job here at Canterbury, uh, sort of within five hours of each other. Wow. And then it was, uh, um, you know, sort of go out to the pub and okay, now we have to decide whether we want to go to Canterbury. Uh, and then there was another opportunity, um, that was also a really good opportunity. It was going to be both at Otago and, uh, and in mm-hmm. Auckland. And so it would have involved a bit of traveling. And so the position here at Canterbury, uh, was a, it was a really good position for me, uh, professionally, but then also sort of a stable base to, to base ourselves out of. And uh, so, yeah, so... That's great. Came yeah. here for a, a two-year postdoc and sort of fell in love with the place. Yeah, so how long have you been here now? So I've been here in Christchurch for five years now. Right, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah that's it's, great. it's home now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I want to go to space now. Yes, <laughs> I do too. Tell, yeah, tell me, <laughs> tell me about NASA. Is this something that you'd always had a desire to do? You know, we've talked a lot about plants. and yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how does it fit in the scheme of that? And then, you know, just what happened? Absolutely. So I think every American kid wants to be an astronaut when they're growing up. Um, it's just something, you know, growing up in the shuttle era, that was something that was on everybody's mind, obviously. Um, so when I was a little kid, you know, the, uh, um, the Challenger crash and then later on the Columbia crash, um, you know, definitely put a damper on things. But just growing up during that time, you know, everybody was really excited about the space program and the opportunities that we could, you know, create using, you know, using space exploration. So when I was really little, you know, it it excited me, but then I, you know, fell in love with science and uh, plant biology. And I thought, okay, that's, that's what I really want to do. And so the, you know, the becoming an astronaut thing sort of went to the wayside. Um, Mm -hmm. My dad was in the Marine Corps. And so when I was little, I also wanted to be a fighter pilot. Um, and that was, you know, we, when I was really little, we, uh, we would watch the planes and the helicopters go over the base. I was, I was born in California and so that always really interested me as well. So that was something I, you know, also really cool. But um, again, sort of the, the plant science hooked me and, mm. you know, I turned away from the, the astronaut career and the military mm. career and really focused on science. Yeah. And then you said you threw your name in as one of 18,000. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, <laughs> correct. So, yeah. So this I have a friend at the Kennedy Space Center that just posted on Facebook that NASA was looking for their next class of astronauts. And uh, so, yeah, threw, threw my name in the ring, thought, well, that's you know, that's sort of exactly who I am, sort of the, the science side of things, the exploration side of things, the teamwork side of things, right? Um, and getting to go to space. Basically, <laughs> it's everything that I was uh, as a person thrown into one career. Yeah. And so, yeah, so through my name in the ring, um, it was a record uh, number of applicants this year. Even during the shuttle era, there's only about 7,000 applicants for each cycle. And so this was a uh, record by, by quite a few. And uh, so that was February of 2016 that the application closed. And then in July of 2016, uh, my references were contacted 
which meant I had made it to the top 450 right. uh, of the 18,000. And that in and of itself was a just, you know, beyond my wildest nice dreams. Nice endorsement. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then when about a month later, I got a call from an unknown number and it was the astronaut selection office inviting me to Houston for initial interviews. And I <laughs> uh, basically, you know, I was very professional on the phone, but as soon as I hung up the phone, you know, I'm dancing around the office and some of the grad students next door thought there was an earthquake because I was just dancing around like crazy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so got to, to go to Houston and, uh, um, you know, tour the, the Johnson Space Center and, and lots of, you know, physical and mental and psychological tests and that sort of thing. But really getting to see what the space program was all about and specifically right. the manned space program and the astronaut corps. And, and that's what, and what was it like to meet some people who were astronauts? Like, yeah, was that a highlight? Must it have was been. <laughs> absolutely a highlight. Again, this is something you know. Once when I applied, it was like, okay, well, this is pretty interesting. This is something I'd like to be a part of. But when I went there, it was like, well, this is exactly what I've meant to do with my life. Again, it was just very much you know the teamwork focused in something greater than yourself. You know, just exploring the world. Um, and, you know, with a scientific focus, again, it was just exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. But when I went there and met the astronauts, it, it was just so humbling. I mean, these are people that, you know, are my heroes. You know, there's, you know, Peggy Whitson, who's, you know, got more records than, than I think any astronaut out there, um, is a biochemist, right? So, I mean, right. <laughs> and, and she grew up on a farm in Iowa. And so, you know, these are people that are, that are you know, the A in my heroes, but then you realize that they're just normal people like anybody else. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're getting to talk with them and, you know, they're talking about how to tie your shoe in space, these are things that you don't necessarily think about. <laughs> but everybody at the Johnson Space Center, whether it was, you know, the people that are training the astronauts or the administrators um, or just anybody, you know, in the, basically in the whole organization are just so passionate about what they're doing. Mm. And I just want to be a part of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like no other organization I've been a part of. Like, I mean, University of Canterbury has got phenomenal people and I, you know, there's a lot of passionate, intelligent people, but just the Johnson Space Center, there's just this buzz there right. that, you know, it's all these people working to, you know, sort of push the limits of, of exploration and, and humanity and, um, yeah, just, just phenomenal. Yeah. So you ended up as one of 50, is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah. So yeah. I went through initial interviews um, came back and then a couple months later, like I said, I was just, I was still buzzing. I mean, the whole time it's just like, all right, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do with my cool. life. I love yeah. academia and I love, you know, the science that I'm doing and I, I don't want to give that up. But if I got a chance to be an astronaut, like there's no question that I, that's what I would do. Yeah. So when I got the call uh, a couple months later, inviting me back for finalist interviews, again, I just I couldn't believe it. Yeah. You know, that all the interviewees the walls, that yeah. I had met, you know, during initial interviews, was you know they were just just phenomenal people i mean they're physicians and pilots and scientists and engineers and i you know i don't i don't know how the selection committee you know chose out of all these incredible people you know chose from 120 to 50 even i don't know how yeah, you yeah. know that it, it's really really tough decision yeah. but yeah to become part of that that top 50 as a as a finalist interviewee was just yeah, a dream come true. Yeah. Really, really cool. That's awesome. And then they eventually chose 12 people, right? You're yes, saying, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we went through the finalist interviews, um, which was a, a week of, of tests and, you know, more more things there at the Johnson Space Center. And again, just top people uh, from all, you know, all over the U.S., just really, really phenomenal people. 
Um, and yeah, so about a month later, mm. then, uh, then they made the call, which was a pretty tough phone call to get. But again, they had a really tough job in selecting the, you know, the 12 out of the 50. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so the 12 started their training in August as uh, astronaut candidates. And it's been really fun to be able to watch their journeys and watch as they start their training. Mm. Um, Just talk me through, you know, the selection process in terms of some of the, I guess, the testing or the things that they were asking you to do. What what was challenging about it or that you didn't expect when you went in? Uh, well, I'm unfortunately covered by NDAs. I can't talk exactly what sure. we were doing. That's fine. Um, but it was really fun. I think the the sort of people that they choose um, for the you know for the final interviews and those sort of things like it's not any one thing that they're looking for you know they're looking for really well-rounded people that you know work well together yeah and I think for me I mean there were lots of challenging bits I mean it's you know it's not an easy job and they they definitely test you um, but it was really good for me to sort of you know realize what my weaknesses are what things that I can improve on and but also you know my strengths and and really realizing that again those are sort of the things that i'd like to do with my life whether i become an astronaut or stay in academia or you know entrepreneurship you know different things different leadership qualities that i can take going into whatever mm. career you know i end up yeah, it sounds like it was really affirming very, very <laughs> much know, so yes because to to even get to that 50 out of eighteen thousand, because i'm pretty yeah. sure the eighteen thousand people were all quality people right <laughs> exactly and that's the thing i mean it's been really interesting you know, going through that journey and making different connections, both here in New Zealand and back back home in the U.S. Um, you know, even the people that you know applied and didn't get to you know to those top um, you know to the interview stage, uh, I made some incredible connections. You know, just with other inter- or with other applicants, and yeah, so they're they're phenomenal people as well. You know, yeah. again, it's it's not an easy decision um, to whittle it down. You know, even to the top 450. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. Well, it sounds like it was quite an experience. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show, Sarah. I really appreciate your time and just hearing about your origins, you know, back in the, the little country school or, the, yes, you know, yes. where you're from. But also, I really love the way you talked about that teacher who, who fed into you and said, you can do it, you know, like yeah. looking back like, with a couple of decades hindsight, that was such a critical thing. And I think for each of us, you know, who are the young people in our lives that we could feed into as a, you know, a 13, 14 year old to encourage them to do something? Because you never know, do you? Exactly. And that's been, I think, the most rewarding part of the different journeys that I've had is Mm. to be able to mentor, you know, younger students or, you know, some of the people in my lab, but, but especially to go out, you know, to schools and things and, and to talk to kids and hopefully be that spark that, you know, maybe they'll be the first Kiwi astronaut, or they're going to be the ones that solve these different challenges. Yeah. And so it is so important that, you know, that we have mentors for, for students. I mean, I would not be here today if it wasn't for Miss McElroy and yeah. all the mentors that I've had all throughout my career. Yeah, that's awesome. And especially, yeah, just to think about that life and, you know, what you then went on to do and study and, and what you're studying and researching and right. working on right now. Yeah. So yeah, I just want to say thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And I think we covered quite a huge variety. We'll see what people think of different topics, yeah. right? <laughs> Excellent. Thank <laughs> you so much. No problem. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sarah. And it caused you to think about some of the issues that we talked about in terms of synthetic biology and GE. And also, it was quite fascinating to hear about the application process to NASA to become an astronaut. 
Now, next week's episode, we're going to be speaking with Andrew Bell, who's the executive director at the Fred Hollows Foundation. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Andrew. But the actual magic of the foundation is that we train doctors to be ophthalmologists, which is a four-year postgraduate master's degree, and nurses to be specialist mm. eye nurses, which is a one-year postgraduate diploma. Mm. So we, we're training Pacific Islanders to be the solution to the avoidable blindness epidemic in the Pacific. And we are setting them up. So the foundation does four things. It's a very straightforward foundation. We restore sites. So unashamedly, we've got doctors out there restoring sites. We train doctors and nurses. We build the health system because if you send them back to their country of origin, they usually go back to a broken health system that doesn't have the ability to, to, to drive advanced microsurgery. So we put in the infrastructure. And then we, it's one of the Fredisms as well. In fact, all four pillars are still the Fred model, is that we do research to ensure that what we're doing is right and what we're doing is the most effective and what we're doing is going to have lasting impact. Well, I do hope you can join me for that and other upcoming episodes. And thank you to those of you who are leaving ratings and reviews. It's actually really simple. In your podcast app, there's probably a little thing that has stars on it, and you just drag it across, and that will help other people find the show as well. Until next time.